Hey, Yogi, Sarah Burchard here, and you are listening to Yoga Unplugged Conversations, a show dedicated to helping you grow, thrive, and gracefully make tough life decisions so you can lead a happier, healthier life. On this show, we discuss common challenges that everyone can relate to and apply philosophy and practical tools that have been proven to be effective solutions. This episode is part two of a conversation I recently had with yoga and meditation instructor Brenda Kwan about bhakti yoga, the yoga of love and devotion. In part one, Brenda defines bhakti yoga, and we got into topics such as loving versus needing and advice for people suffering from a broken heart. I was inspired to record a part two of this episode after reading a book by Bell Hooks called All About Love. This book opened my eyes to some of the patterns I had unconsciously formed around love and gave me a new perspective of what it means to love someone. Unsurprisingly, Brenda had studied this author's work extensively, so when I brought up an idea of discussing parts of this book with her on the show, she was totally game. Our discussion today will draw from ideas from this book, as well as a couple others, and look at them from the perspective of bhakti yoga. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Brenda, nice to have you back on the show. Hi, Sarah. Nice to be back. Nice to so, have human contact. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the, the world is a uh, different place today than from when we recorded part one of this show, for sure. Absolutely. Right, right. Yeah. How are you doing so far? Actually, I'm doing great. Uh, I think some people are naturally wired to be in isolation, and I found out that I'm one of those people, so I'm doing really well, actually. Yeah, the introverts are, like, having no problem with this. Pretty <laughs> much. Included. Yeah, right, right, right. You're like, this is great. <laughs> yeah, I have way more energy, you know, because I'm not, you know, I think introverts tend to be empaths, too, mm -hmm. and so less of your energy is sent out to protect you or to interact, you know, in ways that you don't realize you're interacting. Yeah. I feel great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I'm, I'm definitely missing social interactions. I'm missing restaurants a lot. Mm. But as far as just having like a routine at home and getting stuff done, it's been fine. I'm, I've been nice. good with it. Yeah. Nice. All right, let's jump right into some of the ideas that Hooks expresses in her book, All About Love. So the first thing she does in this book is she defines love, not as this mystical thing that we have no control over, but as an act. And she uses a definition that she found in a book by psychiatrist M. Scott Peck called The Road Less Traveled. And he says that love is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. And that love is an act of will, that it's both an intention and an action. So I like this because it places equal importance on self-love and loving others. And mm -hmm. it shows that there's a responsibility that comes along with love. That instead mm -hmm. of saying you're falling in love, you are choosing to love. So what do you think about this definition and the idea of choosing love instead of falling in love? Well, so what's interesting about reading Bell Hooks now is that I first came across her work when I was in graduate school, which uh, is now 20 something years ago. Mm -hmm. And I remember back then it was revolutionary for me one of her essays was called Talking Back, and it really had a lot to do with how women 
were really raised to not voice their opinions. And when they did, they were being told they were talking back. Mm -hmm. And so it was about reclaiming that idea about voicing the self. And that was a seminal essay. And it led me into a lot of her other works, including things that had to do with love in the classroom. And those were things that people were not even beginning to discuss at that time. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that she was visionary and she really was and still is. And so now going back to her after having been on the yogic path pretty extensively, I had a really difficult time reading not only the definition, but the preface and the introduction, hmm. which was this moment of heartbreak for me because I think so highly of her. And ultimately what it was is that I didn't feel like I wanted for me to define love anymore. Mm-hmm. It's almost like instead of trying to explain maybe what ice cream is to somebody is just to have them eat it, mm-hmm. you know? And so mm-hmm. it was a difference, which I think really came into play after that experience with Ram Das and having spent time with Krishna Das, where the talking is just talking after a while. Yeah. And what it is, is can you be? And I found myself having to flip back into an academic mindset to understand where she was coming from. And what she said ultimately was important because some people learn through the lens of, of thought and words, and that's totally valid. You know, all paths are valid, but especially after having spent time with Ram Das, I just felt like it was almost this confusion of words to me. You know, mm. and I don't mean to be disrespectful to Bell Hooks at all because I love her. She's incredible and really just a revolutionary, as I said. But there was something that shifted. And so I was kind of navigating my own experience with that as I was reading her book. Yeah, you know? it's almost, yeah, like you're programmed now to think the other way. And right. Yeah, so you really had to switch your mindset in order to right. hear that. So I didn't quite answer your question. As far as her definition, it made sense to me. I also wondered though, would it make someone, would it make sense to someone who didn't know what spirituality was or didn't have a relationship to their spirituality? Hmm. Would that relate to that person? You know? Yeah. Because, okay, let me go back to the definition again. Mm -hmm. The love is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. If you don't even mm-hmm. know what spiritual growth looks like or what mm-hmm. it is, <laughs> then you're like, well, why does right. that even matter? Right. Uh, I think there are people in the practice now who still aren't sure what the difference between spirituality and religion are, you know, what mm-hmm. the difference is rather. And to come to Bell Hooks, I, you have to have a particular progress in that path of spirituality, I think, to even come to her. Huh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I could see that. Yeah. Like you, you have, there has to be like a little bit of a, a primer there before you dip into that so that you can be ready to hear some of these, these ideas. Yeah. That she has. And, and it's, it's a big primer, right? You know, I remember once I was talking to my auntie a long time ago about a relationship and I was complaining to her that the person I was with didn't meet my emotional needs. And she just said, well, you know, you can't tell him that. And I was saying, why not? And she said, because that doesn't mean anything. You can't say, can you meet my emotional needs? She's like, you're going to have to say, could you please hug me because I'm crying? You know? Yeah. She said a lot of times people don't understand what that means. And I wondered that about this idea of spiritual nurturing. Well, I'm not even sure I know what that means, you know? 
I, yeah, I guess you leave it up to interpretation, right? Like, what does that right. mean to you? And right, then, true. Yeah, and then if that person is giving you whatever you've defined that as, then maybe that's what you need and that's, that's good enough for you. But do you see how like I started getting into this kind of thinking mode of, well, if my idea of spiritual nurturing is not the same as yours, then if you try to give me what you think is spiritual nurturing and I reject it, you know, it just got me into that whole yeah, thinking mode, too right? Too much. Yeah. It's like, right, shut up and is, just love the other person. <laughs> that's exactly where I started yeah. going. Um, you know, for me, where I am now, and I kept thinking about what Krishna Das says about how you can't think your way out of a mental prison. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I kept stirring things up. And all I really wanted to do was like stop and close my eyes and like center on my heart. Yeah. Yeah. But, but again, though, I think that like we understand what love is, at least for ourselves, mm -hmm. because we've <laughs> ultimately thought about it a lot. And, and we've practiced mm -hmm. it a lot, but in order to practice mm -hmm. it, you have to kind of like know what you're practicing, right? So yes, you yes. don't think about it, you feel it, but at the same time, like we said, there's kind of a primer behind it. We're walking into it knowing what we think love feels or looks like. Exactly. I don't think I gave enough significance to what happened in the Darshan with Ram Das. It was two weeks before he left his body, and I keep talking about it as a really incredible and special and blessed moment, but it was his last darshan, and for all the thinking we've done about love and the experiencing and trying to get it right and the therapy and everything, mm -hmm. all of that didn't matter, you know, when somebody looks at you with that unconditional love, which is what he says about Maharaji, the way that Maharaji looked at him everything before fell away. It's as if it was me trying to describe ice cream to someone who hadn't had it. And I was just trying to use my experience to tell someone mm -hmm. instead of just feeding them. And what he did was he fed me. So I almost feel like the things that I thought before were just about feeling my way in the dark, which isn't a bad thing because that's how ultimately what we do. But there was something really transformative that I'm starting to understand that happened during that darshan. Hmm. In the experience of being in unconditional love. Yeah. Yeah. Can you define darshan for anybody who doesn't know? Oh, absolutely. So darshan is a moment of blessing or transmission. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can be sometimes through touch or it can be through a gaze. And in this case, it was a gaze. Hmm. I've, I've had Darshan from other people, but this was tremendous. It was like he knew this was his last one. Other people I know have also gone through pretty major transformations, just having experienced what it was like to be loved without limitation. And because you now have that, you know how to give it, you know what it is, you know how to be that way with other people. Mm -hmm. And no amount of experience I had with partners or with family or again with therapists equaled that. And that isn't to put down what happened before. I do think I was extremely lucky to be there, but all of a sudden it made all the talk about it seem like it was a little circuitous, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I've also been reading this book called the power of love by Osho mm -hmm. and he 
it's like the opposite of, and he's a spiritual teacher. So it's the opposite mm -hmm. of hooks where he doesn't agree with defining love. And he says that the more you try to define it and possess it, the further away you get from experiencing it or ever coming to know anything about it. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how I can, I can see both sides. Yeah. I, I like, I like the definition by Scott Peck. I also like this definition, which is more in alignment with what you experience with Ram Das. I think having both is good. I think like, yeah, you know, it's like one of those things where, you know, Jennifer always talks about this with meditation. You have to have the theory and the practice together. You can't just have one or the other. Yeah. And ultimately all roads are right. You know, it's just because a road doesn't work for you anymore. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. Mm -hmm. But you're on a different road now, but all the roads lead home, you know, all the truths are there, but it's what's your path there. Yeah. And so I agree with you. I think you need them both. And I think you need them all. Yeah. Because I, I found what Osho says about, you know, the, the more you try to define it and find it, the further away you get from it. I found that to be true with love. I found that to be true with other things too. Like, uh, for example, like my career path, it's like mm -hmm. the more... I tried to think about what my career path should be, uh, the harder it was for me to see what it was. And mm -hmm. the more I simply was just true to myself and acted in ways that just aligned with who I was, the clearer my path became. <laughs> right. It's that thing about when you're trying to grasp or hold something or have an attachment to it, right? And yeah. you know, I, I sometimes think about it like water. If you have water flowing and you're trying to grab at it, you don't really get it, you know, but if you just <laughs> open your hand, then it just keeps pouring and pouring and oh, pouring your hand. Oh, yeah. Spoiled, you know? Yeah. Yes. So it, it seems like that's what it is to me when we try to own something or label it, which is ironic again, because you and I are both writers. Yes. The language was, can only do so much. Right. Ultimately. I was, it's not I, I the was, same. Yeah. I was thinking the exact same thing. I was like, mm. as a writer, it's very frustrating because you want to be able to articulate it. But it also kind of gives you like this nice excuse to like not have to articulate it too, you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even the teachings say that the word is never, the word is the, the approximation of even om, right? Is the approximation of pranava, you know, but it's not the actual thing. It's the closest you can get, but it's not it, you know? So it's yeah. that same thing where we can do a beautiful job of painting the picture but it's not what was actually in the picture. Yeah, it'll never yeah. be dressed as the real thing. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so I want to talk more about self-love and mm -hmm. how it shows up in intimate relationships. Uh, so Bell Hooks talks about how society never teaches us that the most important thing you can do in love is to learn how to love yourself and create a union with your soul. To have an intention to care about yourself and honor your mind and body like a temple and to take time every day to get in touch with who you really are so that your actions align with your true self. Mm -hmm. She says that it's only when you can truly love yourself that you are able to love others. So my question for you, Brenda, is what happens if you are never able to fully love and accept yourself and be okay on your own? Do you think that this means you will never be able to be in a healthy relationship? I think it means see you in the next lifetime. I don't remember if it was um, Swa um, Swami Rama or if it was Pandaji, but 
somebody had asked another master teacher, how do you become enlightened? And the question, I mean, the answer was, well, if you just do nothing, you will become enlightened because that's the whole point of rebirth, that every time you're reborn, you're reliving some karmas, letting others go, and you're constantly refining. So ultimately, we all get there, but it's just a matter of how many times we go around the cycle, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and ultimately, the journey is towards that self-love. Just because someone's a little farther on the path may have nothing to do with, in fact, it does have nothing to do with your own journey, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm positive in previous lifetimes, you know, we were the nightmare that we think somebody else is, you know? Yeah. So... I think we can only do our best. And, you know, part of it is, again, letting go of goals and just trying to be a little bit better than you were yesterday, trying to be less unconscious than you were yesterday. That's really all you can do. And the closest that you get is the closest that you get. But it's yeah. also the faith that you get there eventually. Yeah. Again, I'm so sorry. I keep forgetting names and things. Was it Marianne Williamson or was it Brene Brown? Somebody had just posted about how this is one lifetime out of so many. And try not to put so much pressure on yourself. This is a moment. We have an eternity to do things and to learn things. So mm -hmm. just be here. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I love, that. I love that. But I also think that like when you find a particular partner that is also trying to practice self-love and be mm -hmm. better at self-love and you can both help each other with that and you grow mm -hmm. at the same time that's mm -hmm. also a nice way to be in a healthy relationship even if you're not quite there yet on your own yeah I mean, well it's so huge you know you and i have talked before about this you know you were saying that it's not the other person's responsibility to help you fix yourself, right? Mm -hmm. It's your responsibility to fix yourself and it's the other person's responsibility to be that person's best. And then you bring that together and see how it synthesizes. Yeah. Know? And I think the problem, and this is where bell hooks explain things so well, none of us is taught how to love and none of us are given really great models, you know? Yeah. Uh, and we have all of these mirror neurons that just pick up things left and right, whether we think they're healthy or not. And then we meet someone we're attracted to and it's like the wild west. You know? Yes. Like, let it all go, right? I know. <laughs> we like forget. <laughs> we're like, oh no, I was on this path. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know. We like what some of my mirror neurons are acting out right now, you know? Yeah. You know, and I thought it was love. And so it's such a complicated business. And in all of that mess, you know, it's really important to be able to focus, which is well, one of the main reasons you want to meditate is like, can you keep your focus and not keep yes. getting distracted by reacting to what someone else is doing? Exactly. Because, yeah, because yeah, you are going to have like those moments where like, oh my God, like being swept off your feet kind of moments. Absolutely. Where, yeah. And then, but can you like come back and like ground yourself and be like, okay. <laughs> this is this is what's this is what the actual situation is. This is what I'm doing and thinking. Is this right. is this the smart decision? Am I getting carried away or am I acting consciously and and making decisions that I'm gonna be ultimately happy with? That's right. And just to take it in an Ayurvedic tangent, we talk about thinking from the gut and about having a healthy gut. And we know that the gut is related to all kinds of things like our moods and our emotional responses. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole thing about Agni or fire, digestive fire with Tantra, right? Mm -hmm. 
and I'm kind of like, if we just took better care of our guts, you know what I mean? We would actually have that clarity of thinking from your gut because your gut knows the brain is the seat of thought. And there's so much that goes on up there with the crazy drunken insane monkey. Yes. You know, but the monkey's not in your gut, right? And so if we can sort of learn to get back to that center, then I think that some of those ruminations fall away. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. You actually feel it. And that's a form of focus too. Yeah. But it, when it we goes, get in love, yeah. No, I was just saying it goes both ways. Like when you calm your mind, your the knots in your stomach go away too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 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 So, you know, take care of your gut flora and, <laughs> and all will be well. Place. You know, I, it sounds super funny, but that's kind of what Tantra and Ayurveda say, right? You've got to start at the source because if that's not clean, nothing else is. So you can't expect to have clarity if that fire isn't burning brightly. Yeah. Can you speak yeah. a little bit about Tantra and what that means and how that relates to Bhakti Yoga? Yeah. Um, so Tantra is really the ability to weave the teachings into your own self-empowerment. Mm-hmm. And there's two sort of veins of Tantra, what's called the left-handed path and the right-handed path. And as far as using the world and everything around you as the means for enlightenment, the left-handed path did things like experimenting with drugs and meat and sex and all of these things, not in a hedonistic way, but in a way to show that this is part of the material world. Everything in the world is divine. Everything in the world is so divine that I can take this drug and I am still in love with God. You know, so I still have that moral center and fire. Um, the right-handed path is the path that you uses things like asana and breath and mantra and the things that we're more familiar with. And then there's sort of a middle path. But the reason people tend to associate Tantra with sex is because there are just some, I don't know, intriguing little bits that get out about left-handed Tantra and people suddenly think that, you know, you know how to do crazy things with your yoni or something. Like. <laughs> <laughs> your, your, your lady parts. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's really about self-mastery and it's really about understanding that you're in the world and that everything in the world is divine. So that's still some esoteric knowledge, and it takes a while to figure out that what divine means, at least for me, is that everything that is come into creation has come into creation by something. And it's something that we can channel, but it's not something that we inherently can give. I can't give life to my pillow, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have that capacity. But mother has an ability to have something in her body that divides cells, you know? So in other words, there's this creative force and that goes into every single form that we see around us. And that's why it's divine. It had to have had that impulse to come into being, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why everything in the world is sacred. Everything in the world is divine. So the thing about Tantra is that central to that practice is that fire. It's called Agni. And it's related to the digestive fire in the body, but it's also tied to your element of purification and your element of knowledge and the kind of light that you can carry and see. So all of that is woven together into this idea of self-mastery. Hmm. I love it. 
Okay. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Me too. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's important for everything, right? Like mm-hmm. the more that you can quote master yourself, the better you can show up for yourself and others. And right. Because when you're showing up in a way that is in alignment with who you are, then you're actually servicing the entire cosmos because your part to play is that good, you know? So it's like if you're in a a symphony and, you know, you didn't practice and they're performing Mahler or something and you're kind of going along and there's enough to drown you out, right? Mm -hmm. But you're not doing your best. Whereas if you practiced and you played your best, it sounds that much better, you know, it's that same idea. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. also when you you show up like that in a relationship, you you inspire the other person. Yeah. You're this person who's like completely whole on their own and the other person is inspired to do that too. And then you can be just like these two amazing people, like kind of on your own journeys, but together. And that's, okay. So that's the next thing I wanted to talk about was also in in The Power of Love by Osho. He talks about Mm -hmm. compromising who you are in a relationship for fear of losing the other person. And Yeah. I don't know what that's like at all. Do you know? (laughs) (laughs) so he compares it to becoming a slave as well as making the other person your slave which i mean is pretty dramatic language but it's it's makes sense though it's great too because Mm -hmm. it it really like clearly defines what happens in a lot of relationships where each person is almost in a way clinging to the other person because they're like okay this is my person this is like my right. chance to not be alone for the rest of my life so i'm going to do whatever right. it takes to like make sure that this works out you know mm-hmm. so what he says is quote only those people who are capable of being alone are capable of love of sharing of going into the deepest core of the other person without possessing the other without becoming dependent on the other without reducing the other to a thing and without becoming addicted to the other they allow the other absolute freedom because they know that if the other leaves they will be as happy as they are now their happiness cannot be taken by the other because it is not given by the other and then he goes on to say that yeah I know, isn't that amazing <laughs> and then he goes on to say that it is with this kind of mentality that the other person's love becomes a luxury and not yeah. a need that you have so yeah. much joy in your life that you simply enjoy pouring it into somebody. I freaking love this. I, I think it exemplifies the ultimate ability to self-love when you can start living like this. Yeah. And, and here, here's the other thing is, do you know anybody who fits that? <laughs> no, right? It's like, it's, oh, I know. Well, you know, yeah, amazing. honestly, though, it, it inspired me. I'm like, mate, oh, no, like, can inspiring. I do that? Yeah, totally. I'm like, um, but you know, here's the thing if everybody were to read stuff like this and to like think about things like this, then it could happen. But the thing is, it's like, there's so many different variables that messes with this idea that makes yeah. it really difficult. But, uh, you know, yeah, There's go ahead. something really beautiful of looking at a loving relationship as a luxury and not a need. For sure. Okay, so going back to the Tantra, part of it is to remove the unconscious, you know? So 
a lot of times we think we're conscious and there's all this programming that we have that we don't even realize is causing us to make the same decisions over and over again. And that's the idea that you're, you don't have self mastery, right? Mm -hmm. And Ayurveda and Tantra and yoga and even Bhakti is meant to, Bhakti, by the way, which came later, is, is meant to let go of that unconsciousness. And so when you have that type of light or mastery, then yes, you can be self-loving and you can look at someone and say, I can't lose you because I can't own you. That there's an alchemy that we have together that is love. It gets, I don't know, it can get destructive, I guess, when that slips away and you try to hold it again, you try to grab it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think you're right that it's a beautiful ideal I think, you know, there's a part of me that goes, but isn't an ideal that, how do I put it? If you have met that level of love, do you even want the relationship anymore? You know? Um, right. Because is it about, even a relationship or is it just you on your own and, and you kind of have this person over here? And, no, and just actually loving the world because, you know, yeah. the way that Ram Das explained it was that, you know, you start to understand that you fall in love. And when you fall in love with someone, it's not the other person who does it to you. It's, it's this alchemy, right, of what happens. But then you try to own that person. And when you don't feel the same way, then one of you starts judging the other person. And, you know, you're constantly going, why don't we feel that thing? So what he said is like, after a while, you start realizing that you're falling in love all the time. You know, that's the bhakti, right? You go outside and you fall in love with the flower. And then you fall in love with, you know, these two people who are just having this great conversation, enjoying each other. And then you no longer try to localize it into one person that you call your significant other, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that's what made me go at that point, does the relationship not even really, it's not even a um, desire anymore. You know, yeah. I think that's why I was asking that question about, do you know anyone who's like that? <laughs> right. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, you know, yeah. And, and it becomes like a power struggle after a while too. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, because you've got this idea of what you want. So like after the honeymoon phase kind of floats away, oh, it's just so good. where like nobody <laughs> can do any wrong, right? When you start yeah. realizing, oh God. <laughs> Yeah. Like this part bugs me, that part bugs me, whatever. And then you start to like, then like the power show happens, right? And you're just like yeah. trying to tease each other and, or That's like right. wish each other were different. And, and, and actually Osho talks about that too. And, and he's, uh. he's like, this is the part where you just let the other person go. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So in a way, I wonder if he has ever even been in a deep relationship because you know in my experience I've had very casual relationships and I've had very very deep long meaningful relationships where Mm -hmm. it took work on the Mm -hmm. day-to-day you know Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. does that make it any less loving because Mm -hmm. there was a power struggle I don't know yeah I mean it's a continuum right I mean I keep thinking not for nothing the teachings talked about the difference between the householder and then the holy person, right? Or not the holy person, the sadhaka, the person who is seeking. When you're a householder, you have all of these obligations and karmas and, and duties that, that you play out. That's your, that's your practice, you know? Mm-hmm. These other things take place when you are not in those relationships and those 
types of karmas. You know, it's just, they're two different things. Yeah. I know. Um, I come back to that a lot. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. One of the things that I was thinking about when I was thinking about this whole like luxury versus need thing was, Mm -hmm. and this is a... (laughs) This is like maybe like a superficial uh, example here. Um, yeah. might, might be different from, from loving a human, but I sort of thought about it the same way I feel about owning a car. So like, mm. I, don't need, I don't need a car. And in fact, I don't yeah. own one part, partly because I don't need one. But mm-hmm. every time my roommate goes out of town and leaves me his car to drive, it's mm-hmm. such a luxury, right? Mm, <laughs> I really right. enjoy it. I'm grateful for it. I, you know, I drive it up to the North Shore or Kailua. I get my errands yeah. done. It's super nice, right? Yeah. But when he comes home and I'm no longer able to drive it, I'm perfectly happy going back to riding the bus and walking. And I don't mm-hmm. miss having the car at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, that's the gift. Wow. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, but can you do that with a human being? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I think... Okay, here's the other thing is that, um, you know, the idea of marriage, and I'm not sure if we talked about it here before, but marriage was originally a contractual and economic institution. It was not about love. And so love as, you know, a marriage, um, love as the reason for marriage really came across uh, right around the turn of the 20th century. It was primarily because you needed, women needed a way to survive. Men needed someone to, to support the household. And so it had really nothing to do with you're my soulmate, you know? Yeah. And now we tend to make it into, I've married my soulmate. That person is my everything. And I just keep going, man, what an intense expectation put on someone. So I also think that, and I'm not getting into, you know, I'm not trying to talk about free love or anything, but I think the forms that we've been given to express relationships don't really work with what Osho is explaining, you know? Oh, and so that's where some of the conflict and, is. Yeah. And he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't necessarily believe in marriage and he's also cool yeah. with multiple partners too. Yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah. Like, he's a very radical thinker, and, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, like very unconventional, but I mean, it's, I think it's really important to think about that kind of stuff because it's, mm-hmm. it goes against everything that we were taught was right, which mm-hmm. is good. Because mm-hmm. everything that we were taught is right isn't necessarily right for everybody. Yeah, yeah. For a lot of um, us. Right, right. It, it, it's like a social pattern that was originally there for need that is now trying to justify itself, right? Because mm-hmm. technically we don't need to get married. Yeah. Um, there's a book by Edith Wharton, um, The House of Mirth, which is all about a young protagonist who's trying to find who she's going to marry because otherwise she has no money. And I won't spoil the book for you, but you know, um, we're not in that position (laughs) necessarily as an entire population anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. God. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) And you know, to to get into the bhakti part, uh, which which I didn't answer. So bhakti came after when you talk about Vedanta and Tantra. Bhakti was a lot later, and it was this idea that you were just drunken in love with the divine you know, that you were so filled with divine that that's all you craved, you know, it's all you saw. And when we translate that now, you know, it's, it's really the practicality of understanding that everything is kind of a miracle in its ability to exist, you know. 
uh, we take things for granted, like, oh, of course, like there's my chair or, you know, um, I don't know, there's my cat, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. and all of these things, they're possessions and things, but actually each of them in and of themselves is, again, born of this creative principle that none of us owns, but that created us. Mm -hmm. And when you start to see that, recently I started trying to see people as beings of nature. Mm -hmm. So in other words, like when I get really annoyed with, and I do get annoyed with some of my coworkers, you know, I keep thinking. <laughs> if any of them are listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Might uh, be you. You know who you're talking about. No, just kidding. <laughs> you know who you are. No. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's because in my mind, I start going, why are you like that? You should do this. And if you only did this, you wouldn't do, and it's all that. But you know, if I met like a tree or if I met like, I don't know, a lake, you know, I wouldn't be like, you know, if you were just a little less deep, I would enjoy this. You know, <laughs> it's like, it is what it is and it's going to have its qualities and you can choose to interact with them and trigger or not. And so this idea of even changing someone or really trying to let go of, I'm like, you are you, you are your own universe in its totality and I can interact with you, but who am I to say what you should be like? I can either kind of align with you or I can walk away, you know? Yeah. And also you fell in love with the person that you're trying to change originally. Like, so if you change them, they're yes, not going to be yeah. the original person that you fell in love with. But so it's like, did you fall yeah. in love with a person or did you fall in love with the idea of a type of person and they're just kind of fitting the mold in the moment or, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're just, yeah. they're, they're good looking and they're charismatic, <laughs> you have fun with them. So you're like, okay, yeah. that could be, that could be my ideal person. Like he could fit that mold. Yeah. I mean, but see, there's also all these theories like, you know, uh, in other words of the Imago thing where when you meet each other, you're actually not even yourself. You know, you're trying to be what the other person wants and you see in that person what you want, you know, so you're not even really getting an accurate sense of yourself. There's something about your unhealed child, right? That's yeah. seeing you are my miracle parent, you know, yeah. and you're in the form of someone who will never leave me. And so, you know, even that is deceptive in some ways, right? You know? Yeah. So who, who are you? You know, one, my psychologist friend, she was saying that one of the healthiest things you can do, and it just cracked me up and she was joking, but she wasn't. She said, one of the healthiest things you can do is on your first date, go, look, here are my issues and neuroses, you know? <laughs> This is who I am. So it's I, not like you're trying I to be. Agree. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> I agree. 100%. I mean, but like, I'm one of those people who likes to geek out on like, yeah. like uh, all of this stuff, really. But yeah. No, but it's true. I mean, like, a lot of the times we subconsciously choose a partner who mm -hmm. remind us, good or bad, of mm -hmm. one of our parents. Yeah. So you end up playing this childhood pattern out yes. later in life in your relationship. Mm -hmm. And so what, like, like, for example, if you felt judged by a parent and yeah. longed to be understood, mm -hmm. whenever your partner judges you, it triggers you to have that longing to under feel understood feeling. Right. And you also kind of chose that person because that person judges you and it's familiar and it's that's familiar. what you think is love. Exactly. Yeah. So this so comes up. back to the self-mastery. So mm -hmm. when you start becoming aware of this pattern is when mm -hmm. you can, well, you can see when you're doing it, but then also mm -hmm. you can also pinpoint what you actually needed 
when you were a child and yeah. you can start to see, you can start to consciously choose partners that are healthier for you and where you feel those feelings instead of the other feelings. Yeah. 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 And yeah. God, I mean, that's when you start to like, you, you start to change your patterns. You start to change your life. You start to get yourself into healthier situations and yeah, that's right. Healthy gut flora, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to go back to that. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. your gut will tell you, it'll resonate that this is, yeah, this is good. Or this is familiar. It's two different things. Right. Know? It is two different yeah. things. And so one of the, the things that Hooks was saying in All About Love was mm -hmm. that knowing your past story is, it's not enough. Like you can get, you can just easily get stuck in that story and just rehash yeah. it over and over again and blame others for the patterns you're in and all that. Um, mm -hmm. But what's, what's even more helpful is to, she says, quote, actively introduce constructive life affirming thought patterns into our lives. Whether a person remembers the details of being abused is not important. When the consequence of that abuse is a feeling of worthlessness, they can still engage in a process of self-recovery by finding ways to affirm self-worth. She says that the wounded heart learns self-love by first overcoming low self-esteem. So dun, 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 yeah. you're the mantra, you're the mantra, you know? Oh, yeah. You're, well, I was going to say, is there anything in the teachings of bhakti yoga that talks about that? But yeah, yoga nidra, huh? Yoga nidra is all about rewriting, you know, and it's about habituation, which is why practice always comes up. You have to be able to do something consistently doesn't have to be an hour a day, even if it's five minutes and you're consistent, that's how you rewrite, you rewrite and you rewire, right? Yeah. The bhakti, again, there's no, there's no thinking. It's kind of this idea that, okay, like if I asked you, um, what was the best or, or you don't have to do any of the name. We're not selling people here, but like, if you, <laughs> if I asked you like who made the best croissant, you know, that you ever had, like something comes to mind, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, and then when you go and you just get like whatever croissant, it's like, well, it's all right, but it's not that, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of how the bhakti functions where it's why I keep telling people do something that you love, you know? Because that feeling that you have when you habituate that, it feels so good that when somebody doesn't call you back after saying they're going to call you right and then pretends that they never said they were going to call you you're just going to be like this is ridiculous you know <laughs> you're not going to engage because the there was such sweetness and such fulfillment and the love that you felt that you're not willing to settle for anything less you know mm -hmm. yeah that's where the self-love really that's the bhakti yeah yeah mm -hmm. for sure one of my thoughts recently was about right now being in social isolation with this whole pandemic mm -hmm. and it's actually it's a really good opportunity to practice being okay on your own yeah like there's so many people right now who are in isolation right now no partner no roommate no kids and yeah we totally need human connection to survive absolutely and mm -hmm. like human connection is very very important but I feel like if you aren't learning how to love yourself and be good with being alone right now, it's like a total missed opportunity. 
Yeah, you know, for those those of us who have the privilege of feeling safe in our houses, you know, not everyone has that right. But for those of us who have the privilege of being at home and feeling safe, mm. it is a spiritual practice of, are you okay being with yourself? Because there's not really anyone else around. And, you know, if you can't be with yourself, how are you expected to go through life? You know? Yeah. I mean, I think those kinds of things are very confronting. And, and it's been really interesting to see how people deal with it. And mostly, again, I think it's just important for us. We're in such unprecedented territory. It's just not to judge, right, how anyone is using their solitude or how yeah. they're dealing with it. You know, it's just really interesting to see, you know. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And I also think it's funny that there was, it wasn't Wuhan, but there was a district in China that because of the isolation, the divorce rate skyrocketed. You know, mm-hmm. because people were like, yeah, you know, I hate my spouse. You know? so, <laughs> yeah, so like maybe too much isolation with your partner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really interesting what will come out, right? It's like we're in these little Petri dishes and, you totally. know, we're going to find out what grows. Yeah, yeah, there was, yeah. yeah, and there was no setting us up for this. Like, there's no warning. I'm just mm-hmm. like, bam, okay, mm-hmm. don't leave the house. And you're like, whoa, right. okay, uh, yeah, uh, all right, well, where's call dominoes how do i get food into my house and um yep yep will i have enough toilet paper so <laughs> <laughs> all right let's talk about emotional maturity for a second and what i mean by that is well there's a, there's a lot of ways you can go with it but doing the difficult thing in order to do what is best for yourself or if you're in a partnership for both mm. yourself and the other person so Let's say your partner is refusing to grow. Is it actually yeah. loving both for yourself and for the other person if you move on and let them go instead of staying with them, even if it breaks both your hearts? When, when you start thinking about love again as a creative principle and not a romantic thing or an interactive thing, if something is not growing, then there's a lack of love, right? And if both of you are not growing, then something needs to change. So in that case, I think leaving is the right thing to do. When something's not growing and the conditions stay the same, it doesn't mean that the situation stays the same with the conditions. The situation gets worse, you know? And the loving thing is to do whatever it is that promotes love. And you have to separate that from reaction or response, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you start to trust love, it's, it's like you're looking at the entire thing going, is everything thriving? You know, is everything able to grow? Does everything have its freedom? And, you know, if not, what do you adjust, you know? Yeah. It's like parent with their kid who reprimand them for you know being bad or you know whatever and it's not that you're trying to be mean to them or that you don't love them it's like actually the opposite like you're doing that too because it's what's best for them right so they can learn right and it's also the thing about I don't remember if I talked about them last time either but again Doric and Jim Little the parents of Brock and Clark Little recognized that their boys were not the uh we're gonna get straight A's and be on the student council type and didn't have any any interest at all in imposing that on them. And instead they sort of stood back and looked at them and said, what's gonna make these two thrive? And then look at what they became. You know, to me that was love and they to me are still 
such a great model of what love in a family looks like. Hmm. And yet, Dork, who I still miss every day. But if you were to talk to her, she would tell you it's work every single day. It's work. Were there any other insights from All About Love that particularly stood out for you? You know, I mean, she's so articulate about masculinity as a trap, you know, and she's so articulate about the fact that men aren't allowed to feel and how that has yes. everything to do with maintaining patriarchy. And for a long time now, it makes me tremendously sad when I just see men who are quite frankly lost because they have no way to relate to their feelings, mm-hmm. you know? And I keep thinking, what would it be like if we were like that, if, if I was like that? And I can't even imagine what kinds of outlets or channels that I would try to seek out. Uh, but she speaks about that so well and so beautifully. And I think she talked about how we confuse care with love in a really cogent way mm-hmm. that just because someone takes care of us is not the same thing as love. Right. And I, yeah. And that struck a chord with me and, um, you know, some of the people I know who had parents who were from the war generation, mm-hmm. um, because Sarah, some of us who are a little older had parents mm-hmm. who went through like <laughs> the Korean war and stuff and <laughs> World War II. <laughs> and anyway, um, it was the idea of if you could give your kid clothing, education, food, and shelter, you are killing it as a parent, you know, because those things were hard to come by, you know, right. more time. But nowadays, and it's like, that's not enough. It's not enough. And so when you were like, but you didn't support me on this, they're, they're like, I don't understand what you're talking about. You had a good meal, <laughs> you know, you go to a good school. And, and, you know, so when she talks about the difference between love and care, and let's use the definition of love as nurturing spiritual growth, it absolutely made sense to me because I thought, wow, you know, I was really taken care of, but was I really, really loved? I don't know, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then you have to just learn how to find that on your own. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's the whole life journey after, after, you know, you, you grow up and become an adult is like learning how to cultivate that within. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and some people don't in this lifetime, you know, you, you replay the pattern and that's where, again, that cycle comes in, right? Yeah. And then at some point you get to a lifetime where you're tired of being on the merry-go-round and you're thinking, how about if I just jump off for a second and sit on that bench and I'm just going to watch the merry-go-round, you know, yeah. and you stop spinning. Yeah. Yeah. That's really nice when you can finally do that. And yeah. it's, it's really cool when you can finally like see yourself choosing different options that are mm-hmm. better mm-hmm. for you. You're like, whoa, like right. you kind of impress yourself, right? <laughs> right, right. Which again is the yoga, you know, I mean, how many times have you found yourself making a different decision and it freaks you out? You had no idea you were going to do something different. Totally. Or yeah. other people tell you, yeah, that, you know, they just suddenly didn't react to something that had always triggered them. And, you know, these kinds of things work. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, this is a really simple example, but when I go to write a text message, mm-hmm. I will like. Sometimes, if I'm having like a really great conversation, and it's like flowing back and forth really quick. Mm-hmm. I'll jam out text, and I'll go hit hit send, and I'll be like, "Wait, read it first. Make sure you know, because yeah. like you know, with auto spell and everything, you know, like change your <laughs> words. And every time I do that and catch myself and remember to like look and edit first, 
first off, a lot of times I see errors that need to be fixed, but I'm just so like, <laughs> I'm just so like proud of myself, right? You're like, oh, cool. Yeah. I really caught myself in that moment yeah. of wanting to rush something out and like stopped and took one second, literally one second so that I could respond instead of react. Yes. And it's that slowing down. As soon as you slow down, your mind has less power over you. So do you remember in some of the practices when we were trying to stay in the heart space and move through vinyasa and we're moving so slow because the timing of the heart is not fast. You know, it's very luxurious. You know, it has this quality of honey, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's where everything is so rich and you're just, it's so visceral and the second you start speeding up, you're in the mind and the mind doesn't understand. It's mm-hmm. responding and thinking and often its own fantasy about what's supposed to happen. And even slowing down a little bit takes you out of that and you're not in your defaults, you know? So yeah, absolutely. It's, absolutely. It, and that, it, that's a good thing to compare it to, too, is yoga asana because mm-hmm. yoga, like postures in yoga especially the difficult ones are mm-hmm. so hard to do. And I don't even want to use the word correctly, but they're so hard to, to do when you're mm-hmm. thinking about them with your brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when you start just yeah. feeling it with your body and like your body tells you where to go, mm-hmm. that's when you're able to do them with so much more ease and you're able to like get yeah. into postures that you like didn't think you could get into. And right. Yeah. Yeah, and then that's where like the muscle memory happens. You like start to memorize sun salutations and things like that. You just start to like memorize. Yeah. Your body remembers them. You don't have to. Like I was doing Ashtanga yoga for a year and I, mm-hmm. you know, I had to memorize the primary series. And mm. after a while, it's like your body just takes you to the next thing and you don't even. Yeah. Have to, and your brain just kind of turns off. <laughs> Right, because you're you're in the flow of energy, you know, and so you're you're going according to what you feel, right? Not what you think, mm-hmm. and so you can tell when a pose is not feeling open, you know, something's heavy, something needs to shift, and it's not because your brain is going, "Did I stack my bones?" You know, um, do I have this alignment? Am I externally? Re-? It's not the mind, and I've certainly had those practices for mm-hmm. a large chunk of time, you know. But when you let go of that and you're in feeling, because that's how we read prana is, is by feeling, then you start to act as a whole. So yeah, you know, it's because your mind has quieted down and then you go, wow, you know, world's a pretty cool place. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe to put a bow on this, as far as defining love goes, it's, mm-hmm. it's good to have some of the theory, but ultimately it's just something that you're gonna feel and something that you do with your heart and and it doesn't necessarily come out in words although words are often used but Mm -hmm. um it's just yeah it's like this and so I guess it in a way it is kind of mystical yeah but at the same time not (laughs) yeah it's very complicated but but not at the same time. Not. It's, you know, I, I just keep going back to physics. I mean, I think you've heard me say this before, that if we had different machinery for eyes than these eyeballs, you know, we would see everything as particles. You know, what we see as form is not form. It's just this swimming us of particles. And that's the truth. 
what our eyes are only able to detect certain things, right? Mm -hmm. And when you see everything swimming like that, and when you see these patterns of things and these flows and the fact that everything is just one big suit, you know, that's the truth. So that, that idea that it's simple and it's complicated, it, it's exactly that. You know, on the one hand, it is mystical because with our eyes, we're going, I don't see the swimming particles when I look at my hand. But it is a bunch of swimming particles at the same time. So it's mystical and it's not. I mean, I get you, you know? Yeah. It's both, yeah. Is there anything else you want to add about bhakti yoga that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with this book before we wrap up? Yeah, you know, I kind of said it before, but the practice, especially now that I think we have to do because there's a lot of fear and a lot of people are being tested in terms of how they feel connection, right? Because we're physically isolated. Mm-hmm. You just have to, you have to keep being able to feel love. So you have to do something every day that just opens your heart, makes you feel love. And whether that's laughing at something that just brings you joy or like me, I have these three cats with big personalities that crack me up all the time, mm-hmm. you know, but you have to keep having that in your heart because otherwise all of this is going to start shutting us down. And that's going to create illness and disease, not only in our bodies, but societally and globally, you know? Absolutely. So don't even worry about what the definition is, but feel it, do something that makes you feel it, you know, whatever that is. Yeah. And that's so much bigger than it sounds like it is. It's such a big thing to do. It's a wonderful practice. I, you know, this is so simple and it's, I think anybody can do it. It's just like a five minute gratitude practice every morning and every night if you can. And it seems so silly. You're like, oh God, okay, I'm thankful for it. But really, honestly, when you, when you start and in your day like that, or at least one or the other, yeah, really start to reprogram your brain to think positively Mm -hmm. more than negatively. And, um, Mm -hmm. and you can get through some pretty isolating times with a positive outlook. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, it also makes you really sensitive to privilege. I do it as soon as I wake up, as soon as my eyes open and I start thinking, you know, here's what I'm grateful for. And then all of a sudden you realize, Hey, you know, if I didn't do that, something in my brain would just assume that of course everybody has, you know, a place to live. Well, that's not true. You know, yeah. of course, everybody is safe in their homes. Well, that's definitely not true. You know? Right. And so you start to become aware of privilege in a way that gives you compassion for others who are not your situation. Yeah, exactly. It starts to snowball into other things. Yeah. It yeah. starts out as a simple like little practice, but it, it, it goes deep. It's if so you good. Yeah. Follow it. yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So before we go, I wanted to share that you were my first yoga teacher to start offering online classes via Zoom when the <laughs> COVID-19 pandemic started. And I just want to give you props, first of all, for having the oh, foresight to know you. that this was the direction that we all needed to go in and <laughs> for being so quick to get your classes going online so that your <laughs> yoga schedules didn't get interrupted. Mm-hmm. Because it can be so easy to fall out of routine when yeah. life is shooken up like this, but you made it really seamless. And I know I personally really appreciate that. Thank you. And, you know, also it's, it's for me too. Uh, you know, what I realized uh, 
I think somewhere in the middle of last week where I just kept everybody on mute the whole time. And then we started, then we ended and I started feeling sort of bummed out. You know, I was like, well, it's like, I just didn't interact with anyone. And so even that little thing of unmuting everybody so we can chat at the beginning just made me so happy. So it's for me too. I need to connect. And then it just reminds me that we're connecting chronically that the physical difference actually doesn't make a difference when we're conscious and we're aware and then we're suddenly connected. It's really yeah. great. No, yeah. yeah so thank I you. Completely connected. It's, it's amazing. Do you want to share with listeners how they can practice with you online and what kind of classes you're currently offering? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so the information's on my website, which is Brenda Kwan, K-W-O-N.com. And I have three classes a week. So these are all Hawaii times. Uh, Sunday from 10 to 11.15 is in all levels. And Tuesday from 4 to 5 is a yoga nidra. Thursday, 5.30 to 6.45 is a yin plus yoga nidra. So these are very gentle classes. Uh, I'm really past the point in my life where yoga is a workout for me. <laughs> so, you know, you're really going to get sort of more deeper methodical approaches to asana rather than a workout. So if you want to work out, there's so many other places to go that are amazing, but just know that coming in that, you know, it's pretty quiet. It's a pretty quiet practice. Yes. Um, great opportunity for meditation. Yeah. Yeah. Just clearing away all of this stuff that gets accumulated when you're alone with your thoughts, you know? So, um, and you know, they're by donation. So I say between one and $10 and, you know, really don't feel self-conscious about giving me a dollar. It's, it's my way of keeping records, honestly, because, uh, if you're the IRS listening, don't worry, I'm reporting all of this. And, uh, <laughs> and of course you're free to give more if you'd like, but, uh, so yeah, just check it out. BrendaQuan.com. Yeah. And since our last episode, you also created a new, more yoga focused Instagram account too, right? I did. Look at you. <laughs> well, I kind of I'm like, I, I wonder if the show is why she did that. No. It's exactly why. Cause you're like, where can I find you? I'm like, um, at the studio. <laughs> you're like, you can, that's how I like it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay, oh so what is your new fancy yoga handle? <laughs> my new fancy yoga handle is a uh, Brenda Kwan, one word underscore yoga, and uh, you know it's where I post some of my favorite things and uh, repost some of my favorite quotes and inspiring things. But the idea is just to kind of make you smile. Things that make me smile too. Cool. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> back on the show. Thank you, Sarah. This was so fun, and and yet I still feel like we could talk for hours. So what an amazing subject. Yeah. Thank you. Well, we can turn off the recorder and continue talking for hours. <laughs> True. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Now, I'd love to hear from all you listeners out there. So please let me know what you thought of the show. And if you have any topics or questions that you'd like me to tackle on the show, the team of Yoga Unplugged and I are here for you. So please let us know. And if you'd like to join in on the conversation with us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at yogaunplugged.org. Find us on Facebook at Yoga Unplugged by Jennifer Reuter. Reuter is spelled R-E-U-T-E-R. Or connect with us on Instagram at yoga underscore unplugged. Thanks for listening, everyone. Namaste.